1: Well, good morning. It's a joy and a privilege to be back here at Southeastern and yeah, very grateful to share God's word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to open up to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verses 8 to 11. The message will focus on verses 8 and 9, but I'll read from verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, Father, we pray that in this time that we have, that the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity? Different people give different answers to this question. So if you based it on popular media, the answer might be something to the effect of Christianity is a religion practiced by judgmental and homophobic people who belong to the Republican Party and have Bill O'Reilly as their spokesperson. In many places around the world, if you ask that question, the answer would be Christianity is America's religion. Others might say Christianity is what you see on TBN in late night infomercials with weird looking televangelists. Or Christianity is filled with people who never have fun, follow a bunch of rules and spend Friday nights watching the Left Behind movie. Before I was a Christian, I would have said, it's fine if you want to believe it, but they shouldn't try to convert people to it. The more you hear people on the outside describe what it is and compare it with the Bible, the more you see how many misconceptions there are. But our main concern today is not with the outsider's perception of what Christianity is, but with those of us who claim to be Christian, what we believe it is. And I believe that even within the church, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. And so here we are in Philippians chapter three, and we're looking at it in the context of instructions that the apostle Paul is given to the church at Philippi. Earlier in the chapter, Paul instructed the church to watch out for the Judaizers or the circumcision party, referred to as the dogs and evil doers in verse three. The Judaizers were demanding that new Gentile converts be circumcised and conform to the law of Moses. So the Judaizers were saying, yes, to be a Christian, amen, you have to believe in Christ and what Christ has done. But you also need to be circumcised. And in making that demand, they were adding to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul was saying, beware of anyone who adds to the gospel, And so he emphasized in verse three that true Christians put no confidence in the flesh. That is, Christians do not rely on human effort or characteristics to make themselves right with God. Christianity is about what Jesus Christ has done in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And so in verses five and six, the apostle Paul used himself as an example, and he began to run down all the privileges that he had. And he named seven specific things in verses five and six, seven specific privileges that he had. In verse five, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. That's a religious privilege. Of the people of Israel, that's an ethnic privilege. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's an ancestral privilege. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that's a cultural privilege. As to the law of Pharisee, an educational privilege. Verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's a personality privilege. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, that's a moral privilege. And with all these very real advantages, he's able to say in verse 7 that he counts all those things as loss for the sake of Christ. And he's using accounting language and saying that the things that he once thought were assets before God were actually liabilities because they were keeping him from God. And they paled in comparison to Jesus. And so in verses 2 through 7, we see what Christianity isn't. It's not adding to the gospel. It's not relying on human effort or privileges to be made right with God. Well, in our text today, we're gonna look at it, what it is positively, what Christianity is. And so I wanna summarize what this message is about in one sentence and then show where I get it from the text. So here's the sentence. The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at this in two points, experiential knowledge and saving knowledge. First, experiential knowledge. Look again at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christianity can be summed up in that last phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And the reason why I say experiential knowledge is because the meaning of that word translated knowing in verse eight and know him down in verse 10. That word there is not just talking about a knowledge of the facts, But the definition of that word is to know, especially through personal experience or firsthand acquaintance. And so experiential knowledge is to be contrasted with mere theoretical knowledge. It's possible to know who Jesus Christ is, but not actually know him like this passage is talking about. A lot of people, especially in the West, have heard the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is famous. There's been movies about him, countless books written about him. He's been the subject of many religious courses in universities. Many people even use his name when they're mad and can't think of another word to use. If you've grown up in church, you've heard his name all the time. Jesus is famous, but to hear about him is one thing, to actually know him is something entirely different. Do you know him? One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. And a few years back, I heard that he was on Broadway acting in a Shakespeare play. So I was able to get tickets and they were really good seats, maybe about 10 rows back in a relatively small theater. Well, after the show, he was gracious enough to come out and take pictures with everybody who came to the show. And so we waited in line and eventually we got to him. And the closer I got, I noticed two things. One is that there was a fence. There was a barrier between everyone. So everyone was on this side, Denzel was on the other side. So he could lean over and take pictures, but there was a barrier there. The second thing that I noticed is that there were two big men with guns right beside Denzel, just in case somebody acted up. And so it's interesting because if you just look at the picture, You might think that I know Denzel, but I don't know him. He's not in my contacts on my phone. There's a difference between being close to someone with a barrier and actually knowing the person. Many people have a barrier between themselves and the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they've been around him, maybe even all their lives. Paul doesn't say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ Jesus. No one is a Christian who has only heard about Jesus. There's many false substitutes for knowing Jesus. I'll name three, three false substitutes for knowing Jesus. Number one, doctrinal knowledge, understanding systematic theology, being able to break down salvation Reading the Puritans, knowing the big theological terms. Those things are fine. Doctrine is important. Pastors are instructed in Titus 2 verse 1 to teach what accords with sound doctrine. But you can't know you, you, you can you can know Jesus. Well, let me just let me say this. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine, but you can know doctrine without knowing Jesus. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing doctrine, but you can know doctrine without knowing Jesus. We have, to get, we have to get those straight. Second false substitute is good moral performance. Good moral performance. That is not committing the so-called big bad sins. Basically being a good person by the world's standards. This is common for many people who grew up in Christian homes. Because of the influence of parents and because the conscience has been enlightened by God's word, there can be a restraint on the open sin that they commit. They're not doing the stuff that their non-Christian friends are doing. And over time, they see the good moral performance as what it means to be a Christian. But being a moral person is not the same thing as knowing Jesus Christ. Third false substitute is Christian service or ministry. Consider what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Pharisees were going on missions trips. They were doing evangelism and yet they did not know Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus and to not know him. I wonder if Jesus would say to any of us this morning what he said to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This experiential knowledge of God is the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31 verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so to be a Christian is to know Jesus. And do you notice how personal it is? Look again at verse eight. He says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, not somebody else's Lord, not my parents' Lord, not my spouse's Lord, not my professor's Lord. It's knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it's personal. Part of my wife's testimony is that she grew up in the church And she was heavily involved, singing in the choir, teaching the youth. And she assumed that she was saved because of the things that she was doing. And it wasn't until she was an adult that she was presented with the gospel and had her profession of faith challenged. It was then that she began to see that the warnings of scripture, the lists of who will and who will not inherit the kingdom of God actually applied to her. And for the first time, she realized that if she had died at that moment, she would have been condemned. And that's when she was awakened to the good news of the gospel that Jesus had died for her. Not that he had just died generally for sins out there somewhere, but that he died for her sins specifically. And so she could say then when she trusted in Christ with Paul in verse eight, Christ Jesus, my Lord, it became personal, Is this true of you this morning? Do you know Jesus in this way? In Philippians 2.11, looking ahead to the final judgment, it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But the mark of the Christian is to see Jesus as my Lord now. Test yourselves by this. How does a person know if they experientially know Jesus? I think perhaps the simplest question that I could ask is this, do you love him? Do you love him? The true Christian is able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 116 verse one, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And love for God is not merely a sentimental feeling, but it's always connected with the corresponding hatred for sin. So Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands in John 14, verse 15. That's where the Lord part comes in. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, "O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The true Christian is able to say sincerely with all his or her heart, he's able he or she is able to say with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine for thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. Do you love him? What does this experiential knowledge of Jesus look like? What does it mean to experience this love for Jesus? In one sense, it's hard to put a finger on, but you know it when you see it. Someone told me a long time ago that when I'm at a wedding and the bride is walking down the aisle, that while all the eyes are fixated on the bride, what I should do is take a peek back at the groom and look at the look in the groom's eyes, look at the look in the bride's eyes. That's it, the the, the object of your affection. It's a crowded room, but the spouse is the only one that you see. That that begins to get at what this love looks like. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this, sense of sin and deep hatred to it, faith in Christ and love to him, delight in holiness and longing after more of it, love to God's people and distaste for the things of the world. These, these are the signs and evidences which always accompany salvation. This is what it means to be A Christian, I think the key in that quote is longing after more of it. The believer says, I love Jesus. Oh, that I would love him more. The true believer says, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's the longing after more of it. That is the mark of the Christian. Do you know Jesus in this way? It's the essence of true Christianity. Much more could be said on this, but let's look at our second point, saving knowledge. The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look again at the end of verse eight. For his sake, I've suffered all, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, in order that I may gain Christ. And so we see that there's two different kinds of knowledge. There's a knowledge that does not save and there's a knowledge that does save. And in this passage, we see that in the Apostle Paul's mind, it comes down to righteousness. So when we look in verse 9, we see a contrast. The contrast between a righteousness of my own that comes from the law and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All other human religion is a form of a righteousness of my own. Christianity alone is about the righteousness from God. And so what we're going to talk about now is the glorious truth of justification by faith alone. And one thing that we should see is that this is not separate from knowing and loving Christ. It's part of what it means to know Christ. So verse nine is sandwiched in between verses eight and 10, both of which refer to knowing Christ. So a major part of what it means to know Christ is to know him through his way of salvation. And that way is justification. This is the Christian gospel. Romans one16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Justification answers the question. How do sinners get right in the sight of a holy God? That's the question. Whether you know it, whether you feel it or not, that is the most important question in your life. Not your job, not your family, not your relationships, not money, not politics. The eternal state of your soul depends on that question being answered for you. The Bible's very clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, by nature, run from God. And there's two ways to run from God. You can run from God by being bad, we see that in texts like Galatians 518, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it means to, to Run from God by being bad, doing all the quote-unquote bad things. Those things bring about the wrath of God. But then there's another way to run from God, and that's running from God by being good running from God by being good. This is like the Pharisee in the, what Jesus, the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed to God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So people who run from God by being good They look at people who run from God by being bad and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like those heathens over there. But what they're doing is they're also bringing about the wrath of God because they're relying on their own performance to make themselves right with God. And so what the gospel says is that Jesus came to to bear the wrath of God for the sins of those who sin flagrantly and openly and badly and for the sins of those who sin self-righteously and hypocritically and, and, and morally. And Jesus lays down his life. He bears the wrath of God for our sins. And then he raises from the grave so that all who look away from themselves and look to him and trust in what Jesus Christ has done, what we receive is the most amazing exchange possible, which is the exchange of our sin for the righteousness of Jesus. So on the cross, Jesus receives our sin. When we trust in him, we receive his perfect righteousness that he lived in his, that he achieved in his perfect life. And God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account for all who believe in him. That is the gospel this morning. And if you trust in that, if if, if you believe that message, The good news is that you will be saved from the wrath to come. Romans 4 verse 4 says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness. And the righteousness spoken of there is the righteousness from God spoken of in our text in verse nine. This is the difference between Christianity and everything else. And the beauty of it all is that a person receives this at the end of verse nine by faith. It all depends on faith. And this is relevant for the Christian life as well. So this is not just the kind of thing where we say, okay, yeah, that's the gospel and that's what got me in the door of Christianity. Now let's move on to the good stuff. No, this is the good stuff. We we are not able to live the Christian life in a way that will honor God without applying this reality in our lives. Often when Christians sin, it's because we forget where our righteousness comes from. We're putting something else in the blank. What we must remember in those moments is that we do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from Christian service. We do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from our reputation. We don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from our job or our willpower or our discipline or our intelligence, or being a good parent, or our spiritual gifts, or our personality. No, our righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and there's ways to know that we are failing in this regard, that we're failing to remember where our righteousness comes from. Just wanna give some examples. When you look down on someone because they struggle with a different sin than you struggle with, that's failing to apply the righteousness of Christ in our own lives. Another way to know is when you always have to be right. You, You just cannot admit that you're wrong, ever. What's happening there? Your righteousness is being, you're placing your righteousness in how you're being perceived rather than in Christ alone. When you're mad at people who don't serve in the same way that you do. When you try to appear to be more godly than you actually are. Right? That's what's happening. Righteousness being placed in perception rather than clinging to Christ's righteousness. I would argue that failing in this regard is at the root of all of your relational conflict. All of our relational conflict somewhere somewhere in there it's either failing to apply the righteousness of Christ to the person that we're in conflict with or even to ourselves. When you can't forgive somebody and you become bitter at them, you allow bitterness to grow up in you. It's only through this kind of experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ where we embrace his righteousness alone that we're able to properly assess things and to see things rightly. True Christians not only repent of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness. True Christians repent not only of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness. John Bunyan has a quote where he says, the holiest prayer I've ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn a whole world. Is that how you see your good performance? The good things that you do for the Lord Jesus Christ? Before a holy God, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. And so what Christians do is we turn away. We turn away from the bad things that we should not do that are against God's law. But we also turn away in a saving sense. We turn away from all of the good things that we have. And we say, God, I don't offer this to you to in order for you to accept me. But I offer this to you as a sacrifice of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've already done for me in accepting me through Jesus Christ. True Christians repent not only of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness. As I close, I want to close with this story in the New Testament about a woman who, by all accounts, did not seem to rightly assess things, but she actually, in God's sight, assessed things rightly. It's in John chapter 12, verse 1 to 6. It says this. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. There's a couple things in this account to notice. Mary does three things that are absolutely shocking. One, she takes a pound of expensive ointment. That was a family heirloom. Most likely, it was the most valuable thing that they owned. It was worth a year's wages. She took the most expensive, valuable thing that she had, and she poured it out on Jesus. The second shocking thing that she did was she let her hair down. In that society, that was only done at home. It was a gesture of great intimacy. And then the third shocking thing that she did is she wiped her feet with his feet with her hair. Do you see the love for Jesus that she had? In that room filled with religious people, she was the wisest person in the room. She was doing the thing that was the most shocking and the most radical and the thing that looked mo- the most ridiculous to all the religious people but she was the wisest one in the room she knew Jesus she loved him and Jesus looked favorably upon that for the poor you'll always have with you but you don't always have me Judas didn't care about the poor Jesus is saying that Mary made the right assessment she counted the most valuable things she had as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ that's what it means to know Jesus by God's grace. May we do the same. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the all surpassing treasure that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to esteem him rightly. We pray that we would place no confidence in our flesh. I pray for these students. I thank you for them. I pray that they would not place their confidence in being in Bible college or being a seminary student or in their grades, but as they do all of those good things for your glory that their hope would be in Christ in loving knowing and treasuring Christ alone help us we need you in Jesus name we pray amen
0: thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary if you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level including doctoral studies we hope that you consider us